This is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media. I'm Matthew Brown. And I'm Alicia Hernandez. As we approach the end of the year, we highlight the work of individuals and organizations committed to two critical issues in the state of New Mexico, immigration and education. Tonight, we're joined by Barney Kasson, a California-based activist, storyteller, and documentarian, as well as Alejandro Macias of New Mexico Immigrant Law Center to discuss the state of immigration in New Mexico and what to expect moving forward. We also speak with Ian Escabel, the executive director of the Learning Alliance. This evening, we hope to inspire and inform you through action and engagement, and of course, good music. To cleanse those auditory taste buds, here's Running by Delta Spirit. Kasim is a storyteller, social justice advocate, and award-winning documentary filmmaker. She has worked with movements like No Papers, No Fear and Ride for Justice, all of which have challenged the sheriffs and overseers of anti-immigration laws across the country. Barney's work is rooted in the philosophy that those most impacted by injustice are capable, strong, and the most qualified to tell their own stories. Recently, my co-host Matthew had a chance to sit down with Barney. Let's take a listen. This is Matthew Brown with Generation Justice, and I'm here with activist, storyteller, and filmmaker Barney Kasim. Barney, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you here at Generation Justice. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Um, so to start off, maybe you could just tell me a little bit about yourself. I am a filmmaker. I make documentary films. Um, I also have made a lot of video for social justice movements, for worker rights, um, women's rights. I was here at University of New Mexico speaking about my work making media for the migrant rights movement in Arizona where I grew up. Um, so I had the privilege of listening to you speak at the University of New Mexico. Can you maybe talk about um, some of the things that you shared for some of our viewers who weren't there? I spoke about um, the use of media in the immigration rights movement in Arizona. So I talked about the way that um, first media was used just to document uh, biased policing and pulling over of Latino residents and the way that some of that uh, cop watch footage was used in the Department of Justice case against the Maricopa County um, Sheriff's Office. And then I talked about um, the use of social media, video for social media to be used to promote activism, to get people to come to the streets and protest the laws and the anti-immigrant laws that were being passed, um, and also to impact the way that immigrant communities were talked about in the media. And then I talked about the way that media was being created by immigrant communities to change the narrative of who immigrants were and to um, change the cultural narrative. Um, and so I talked a lot about the um, No Papers, No Fear, Undocumented, Unafraid movement and how that media wasn't the videos that we we're producing during that time and the images and different forms of media were for people to have a transformation within themselves to um, not be afraid, not be living in, in the shadows and to um, transform 
to um, work for their rights and demand a seat at the table. And then the last thing I talked about was the way that we use media and, and video to impact individual deportation cases, to help fight deportation cases, to change the way that uh, judges were ruling on deportation cases, and also the way that uh, a youth media collective called Puente Vision were in videos to stop their parents' deportation and then went on to create videos for other youth. That was, for me, uh, probably the most inspiring part of the work that I did in that community was watching these young people transform from um, fighting their own families' deportation cases to mm. becoming media makers and um, fighting in that struggle and having a voice and helping other youth join that movement through the Puente Vision Media Collective. Can you maybe explain a little bit about the uh, Puente Project for our listeners? So Puente is an organization in based in Phoenix. They're sometimes called Puente Arizona, sometimes called Puente Movement. Okay. And um, they do their community um, grassroots organization that... Um, fights against anti-immigrant legislation and for migrants' rights. They um, have led campaigns against Arpaio, have led campaigns against SB 1070, have led campaigns for um, people doing hunger strikes in detention centers, stopping deportations. Um, they're there. They're doing amazing work. They've been leaders in the community. I had the privilege of working with them from 2010 to 2015 when I was uh, producing videos for them for many different campaigns. And I did volunteer work with them pretty intensively for five years. And so how did that sort of work with media justice and media advocacy kind of begin for you? Well, I think I, you know, I started making video as an artist. I was always interested in art and poetry, spoken word, rapping, making comic books, all this stuff. And I would make uh, videos, you know, when I was in my early 20s and teenager, I would make videos um, with my community because I was not interested in mainstream media or television. And so I made short fiction videos with all my friends that represented our community and our culture. And I just became interested in using video in that way. And I, I always saw that there wasn't necessarily space for me in, in media, but I always wanted to make that space. I wanted to make movies, but I wasn't watching movies. Okay. You know, I wanted to make short videos, but I wasn't watching television because I felt that it was um, not healthy for my communities. And I felt that it was capitalist and anti-people um, of color. And so... That's what made me become more creative with video and to try and make my own ways of telling stories. Um, I got a job filming weddings and got interested in, in playing with cameras that way. And awesome. for me, it was definitely like an extension of making art in my community okay. and trying to make something new. Um, so one of the things that I've learned from you so far is just kind of the importance of identity and that kind of being a core piece of how you approach media. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and how important that is? I think that, you know, my identity is, and my community is, is really central in the work that I do because I feel that when I make videos, oftentimes it's just trying to um, combat a narrative that's the d dominant narrative about my community, about the Somali refugee community, about immigrant community, about women, about workers. And I think it's a longing to see, to see myself and my communities represented with dignity. Um, I from, I'm from Somalia. And, you know, try Googling Somalia. When the images of my country and my culture in media is of piracy, of terrorism, of things that is, it's not how I see myself. It's not how I see my family. It's not how I see my community. It's not how I see my culture. 
So there's kind of an, an urgency to um, show my community in a way that's dignified because I love my community. I love myself. And so I want to make media that shows that. So one thing I really appreciate about the work that you do is that it, it gives a voice to very marginalized and disenfranchised communities. And it does it from the perspective of those communities. And I want to ask you, how important is it when we approach media that we enable communities to tell their own stories and we give them the ability to frame their own narrative? I think that communities have to speak for themselves. Um, no one's going to allow them to frame anything. Uh, they have to produce their own media, and this is the time to do it. Ida B. Wells was doing it. There, there's been a long history in this country of that, and um, people have to do it themselves. You know, I don't see my community as disenfranchised. I see my community as powerful and strong and resilient, and no one else is going to see have that sense of love and pride to represent my community the way that I do. I also want to ask you, as, as a media maker and a filmmaker and a storyteller, what is your role in that process? That's an interesting question. I, um, I work with a lot of different communities. I'm, my own background is kind of, I don't really fit into one category or community. I'm uh, Somali, Yemeni, Irish, English, Scottish. I, my father is from Africa. My mother is a U.S. citizen. So I have a, you know, a mixed um, cultural and economic background myself. So um, I'm often kind of like crossing over and, and working with different communities. You know, it's, it's something that comes up for me a lot is if I'm working with a community that's not my community, how do I represent them and how do I, you know, claim my own culture, but also understand what privileges I have and, and where I should and not stand, tread and speak. Um, and I think that the best solution I found to that is collaborating with people hey, I want to make a film, will you help me? Like, let's do this. What should we say here? This is what the edit looks like. What should we ask, you know? And make and make videos that serve their needs. You know, I collaborate with communities. I work in service with communities. And I respect communities. That's how I try and do it. And I'm learning every day how to do it better. So is there anything that you would want to say to maybe future media makers or people who are interested in specifically media centered around social advocacy and civic engagement? Is there anything that you would want to share with them or some tricks of the trade that you've learned in terms of identity and privilege and how not to, to overstep those bounds or speak for a community that's not yours? You have to, that, what I've done is listen to communities, assume I don't know what they're doing, assume that they're experts, um, you know, come in with gen genuine respect for those communities. But I think, you know, more than anything, um, when I'm, you know, have hours of footage and I'm editing, trying to make a video out of it, um, the thing that I do is I pray a lot. And I um, pray to the creator that I'll be able to tell the story of this community in a way that makes them see how important that they are and makes puts a mirror on their work to they can see how powerful they are even more than they had imagined. And I think, you know, the stories sometimes tell themselves. I spent a lot of time, you know, searching within myself and, and praying and, and looking inward to try and tell that story. And so I think it's, it's an act of love. It's an act of faith. And it's very personal. How do you think that media has given you and others a platform to kind of raise awareness about these issues? Things that inspired me to do this work go all the way back to Ida B. Wells, who was the first um, investigative uh, journalist. And she... Uh, made innovation in her field and produced excellent work by documenting lynchings. And she had her own printing press at the time. 
And I think um, what's happening now is a continuation of that work, but it's aided by technology. Um, we saw the Rodney King incident where a you know VHS recorder documented what was happening to him. And um, although he didn't get justice, there was a dialogue about it. And then I was doing Cop Watch in the 90s and 2000. That was a way to document injustice as far as immigration policing in Arizona. And now we have Black Lives Matter movement and cell phones and cameras are ubiquitous and people are just pulling out their um, camera and documenting injustice. And so I think it's really democratized media communications. I also think it has allowed people to um, determine what the press is covering by um, sharing it on social media and, and, and Twitter and forcing the issues that they think that are important that normally didn't get covered but are in social media, forcing it to the national debate. So I think it's a really exciting time. And my work, you know, I couldn't have done the work that I do now. I could not have done 20 years ago. It's, you know, hundred. I only started making films after digital video started. I did not see a way for someone from my economic class to produce film and, and buy film, right? right. I only start, was able to do it once there was digital video. And then the only way I was able to work and impact um, the way that the state and the nation talked about immigration policy was because I could post videos online. Um, lastly, is there anything that you'd like to add or anything you'd like to tell our listeners? Today I spoke about the way that we used media in the migrant rights movement in Arizona. And I think that um, we were innovating new systems in new ways, um, and we made a lot of mistakes. But we, we were innovating and we were making a path and we were making systems um, because there was no other infrastructure. And we, had, we were dealing with new tools. Technology was changing all around us um, every moment. And um, I think every movement will have its own... Um, strategy, its own technical strategies, its own voice, its own messaging. And I really love seeing the way that the um, No DAPA movement is producing media. I love seeing the way Black Lives Matter is producing media. And I think every, every organization will do it a different way. And I think they'll do it, we'll have innovation, creativity, um, community, um, and different strategies based on the needs of their community. And I think that's really exciting. And I think that's really beautiful. Barney, thank you so much for taking the time to share this space with us and just have a conversation. I really respect uh, the work that you do, and it's been a pleasure to sit here and talk with you. Thank you so much for having me. This is Matthew Brown with Generation Justice. Barney, it was a pleasure to listen to you speak at the University of New Mexico and to hear all about the work that you've done in so many communities. Your approach to media is one of empowerment, which reflects the philosophy of the work that we do here at Generation Justice. What I admire most about you, Barney, is your independence. I think it's so brave and special how you've used media as a tool for storytelling and social justice. You've made your own narrative in media, and it takes a dedicated individual willing to beat those odds in order to do that. Speaking of defying odds through art, here's a poem by Corky Gonzalez called Yo Soy Joaquin. I am Joaquin. Lost in a world of confusion, caught up in a whirl of a gringo society, confused by the rules, scorned by attitudes, suppressed by manipulations, and destroyed by modern society. The New Mexico Immigrant Law Center is dedicated to preventing separation of families due to deportation. 
NMILC is the only legal service provider in the state to offer assistance to families facing deportation while also providing legal relief and a path to citizenship. My lovely co-host Alicia had the opportunity to speak with Alejandro Macias, the center's school-based program coordinator, about what the immigrants' rights movement can expect in the near future. Here's what they had to say. This is Alicia Hernandez with Generation Justice, and I'm here with Alejandro Macias, who is an immigrant advocate and legal assistant fellow with the New Mexico Immigrant Law Center. Welcome to Generation Justice, Alejandro. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Please introduce yourself and tell us about the work you do. Yeah, so my name is uh, Alejandro Macias, like you mentioned. Um, I've been working with the New Mexico Immigrant Law Center um, for a little over a year now, and I um, was just able to actually get contracted by them again for another year. Um, and so right now with the New Mexico Immigrant Law Center, I'm working as the school-based program coordinator. And what that means is that we go on site to schools and we uh, do intakes to screen for the students at APS schools and some of the charter schools that we're working for to see if they qualify for any type of immigration status. So that's a little bit of the work that I do. Um, I'm also going to start taking on some additional work where I'm going to be helping unaccompanied children that are um, immigrating from Central America or Mexico that uh, just don't have anybody here, family members, um, they're unaccompanied, and we're going to start taking on some of those cases um, and uh, with a few other variety of things, uh, but that's my main role. The upcoming transition at the federal level is going to have a major impact on immigration policy. What are you hearing from New Mexico immigrant families and youth that you work with? What are their concerns, or what have they expressed? Yeah, so there's um, a lot of fear, obviously, with the political climate that's going on right now, especially with the rhetoric that, uh, against immigrants. Um, a lot of them that I've been working with at the schools, spe- specifically children, you know, high school students, a lot of fear. They think that they're going to get deported. Um, they're afraid for their families. They're not sure if they're going to be able to continue to go to college. So those are all the concerns that I've been hearing at the schools. What is your message for immigrant youth and families in New Mexico? I think one of the most important things that um, I want to get out to the New Mexican community is that we need to be prepared. Um, at the moment, there's so much uncertainty and there's not enough information to actually, um, you know, start taking action right now um, on your immigration applications or anything like that. But definitely being prepared by knowing your rights, knowing what you can do at the moment, knowing what your options are if you're filing for DACA for the first time or if you're renewing. So getting that information, staying informed, um, staying up to date with us, either through social media, we're on Facebook, uh, we're also on Twitter, um, on our website, uh, nmlc.org, and listonm.org, you can get that information. Um, so like I mentioned, there's just so much uncertainty, but um, as things develop and as things unfold, we'll be able to give you the most up-to-date information on those uh, social media websites. Great. The president-elect has made some concerning statements towards immigrants and about what he plans to implement at the federal level. What steps is NMILC taking or planning to take? You know, um, yeah, there they have been some very concerning statements towards immigrants and, you know, how this is going to affect everybody at the federal level. And I think NMLC, the two main things that we're doing on this issue is that we're having conversations with our partner organizations and we're also screening for more permanent paths. So a lot of the students that I work with, they're on this temporary DACA work permit that they have to renew every two years. 
um, with this, it's very temporary status. They have to renew over and over again. And so it's not really uh, something that's going to be for long term. And so what we're doing is we're going to go ahead and screen for more permanent type of passive immigration relief. So that's one way that we're doing it at an individual level. And then at a more systematic level, we're doing it with the organizations that we work with, allowing them to know what's happening right now, um, what information is out there, knowing the rights. And so we're working with El Centro de Igualdad de Derechos. We're working with Enlace, with different community groups, so that everybody um, can reach out to their clients and their population and let them know what is happening at the at the federal level. Um, at the moment, there's a lot of uncertainty, but we're already beginning those talks. We're starting to plan how we're going to respond to certain um things that the Trump administration is going to be proposing to do uh, with some of these students that have these work permits, um, whether they're going to be just canceling out the program or whether they're going to be targeting people for deportation. So we're already in talks with our community partners on how how we're going to deal with the situation. With regards to immigration policy, what is most important to keep in mind for New Mexico? Right now with New Mexico, I think the most important thing to keep in mind is to keep local policy and keep that protected. So one of the things that the Trump campaign um, was reiterating during the entire presidential election was saying that they were going to reinstate what's called secure communities. And secure communities was giving police, local police, law enforcement, the access to identify if a detainee uh, has immigration status or not. And so at the moment right now, um, APD is not able to actually do that. They don't have the ability to identify a detainee's immigration status. And so protecting that, um, I think, is one of the most important things we could do here in New Mexico to protect that. APD was actually, in 2007, sued for um, doing that by El Centro de Igualdad, um, and I believe it was Maldif as, as well. And so we want to go ahead and you know keep that local policy pro-immigrant, not allowing local law enforcement to coordinate with ICE uh, with immigration custom enforcement is one of the things that we can definitely uh, continue to do. With the DACA program, um, one of three things can happen, um, and a combination of those three things as well, but with this program is that Trump, if he decides to remove the program, he can do that. Everybody that has the work permits, which is about three, quarter of, three quarters of a million um, of people that have these work permits, will be recalled. So they'll have to send in all their information and send it back to immigration. Um, that's one of the possibilities. That's one of the things that can happen. The second thing with this with this program is that they can phase it out. Basically, is that they won't be accepting any new applications and that um, the students will be able to, or the person who has this work permit will be able to keep it until it expires. Um, and then the third thing is, which is the worst scenario, is that they'll be issued what's called an NTA, which is a notice to appear, and then they'll be um, referred to ICE so that they can be deported. So we're preparing everybody for the worst, but we're also keeping hopeful and keeping the community informed. And so right now there's a lot of uncertainty, and I know a lot of people out there are like, well, we just don't know what to do, what's happening. At this moment, we have to be a little bit patient, and we do have to wait. Um, As things come out, like I said, just keep informed with us, stay in touch with us. So as things unfold, we're able to get that information out to you. I mean, we have to always prepare for the you know, for the worst. And I think that's what we're doing as an organization and what we should be doing as a community. Where can folks learn or get more information on NMILC? Uh, one of the main places that you guys can go ahead and get information is from our website, which is nmilc.org. 
Um, you can also visit listonuevamexico.org, which is listo, L-I-S-T-O, and M.org, um, and you'll have the most up-to-date information about the work permit DACA, um, what's happening with that, and the possibilities that can occur once the Trump administration takes charge. And so you can go there, get that information. Uh, we'll talk to you about if you're filling out your application for the first time, kind of um, what we're advising our clients, which is at the moment we're not recommending those people to actually file DACA applications. As far as people who are renewing and they're doing it for their second, third, or even fourth time, um, we are letting them know that they should um, go ahead and renew um, with, you know, the potential of certain risks um, of, you know, losing their, their fees and losing um, and, and continuing to give that information out to immigration. But yeah, they can find that information there. They can also find more information about know your rights, what rights they have, what they should do if they encounter an immigration official. And so they can find that information both on nmlc.org and listonuevamexico.org. Is there anything else you would like to add? Yeah, so um, like I mentioned, it's something that's unfolding at the moment. One of the things that I just want to encourage people to continue to do is to continue to um, protect our local policies um, and continue to talk to your elected officials or local office uh, uh, officials to keep New Mexico immigrant inclusive and to continue to fight for our rights uh, and, you know, to continue to come together uh, as a community of New Mexicans as we are. Well, thank you, Alejandro, for coming in and joining us today at Generation Justice. And I really do appreciate the work you and NMILC do. Yeah, thank you. Um, like We have a great team, and thank you so much. We're always really happy to be here. Uh, we appreciate your guys' time as well. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This has been Alicia Hernandez with Generation Justice. New Mexico is without a doubt one of the most progressive states in the country with regards to immigration. NMILC and the work they've done in our communities reflects that. Thank you, Alejandro, for the critical work you do in our community. It's important to change the narratives that surround our state's immigrant families, and the work that NM Immigrant Law Center does is a constant reminder of that. To help break the fences, walls, and borders that separate us, here's Ball and Chain by Big Mama Thornton. Ian Escobar is a community health and education advocate and the executive director of the Learning Alliance, an organization committed to creating dynamic reforms to New Mexico's education system. Recently, I sat down with Ian to discuss the Learning Alliance and improving New Mexico's education system. Here's what the two of us had to say. This is Matthew Brown with Generation Justice, and I'm here with Ian Escabel, a community health and education advocate and also the executive director of the Learning Alliance. Ian, it's a pleasure to have you here with us today. Thanks for having me on, Matthew. Um, to start off, could you please introduce yourself and also tell us a bit of the work that you do here in New Mexico? Absolutely. So my name is Ian Escabel. I'm the executive director of Learning Alliance New Mexico, born and raised here uh, in New Mexico in Sandia Park. Went to public school, graduated from Manzano, 
and uh, just feel very fortunate to be able to continue to work in my community in public education, not only with our local district, APS, but with other districts across the state as well. Okay. So um, kind of going off of that, let's talk a little bit about the Learning Alliance, specifically the history and also your guys' mission statement. Learning Alliance is really kind of focused on listening to students, parents, community members, and learning what they want to see different in their education system and how we can support them in their student success. The history is we've been around for probably about six years or so. We kind of got kicked off with a white paper talking about um, the field of education in our state. And from that, a group of innovative thinkers kind of got together to say, okay, so what are some things that we can do to, to improve education here locally? Um, so I wanted to ask you, Ian, what does the work of improving public education actually look like? So that's a great question, Matthew. And I think if you ask you know, 50 different people, you'll get 50 different answers. One of the things that I've learned as I've listened to different folks across the state is local people have really clear ideas about what they want to happen in their local communities. And sometimes it's hard when we try to pass up ideas that may work in Albuquerque. Mm -hmm. Maybe that doesn't translate to Las Cruces or Carlsbad or Farmington, right? And New Mexicans will tell you just because it worked someplace else doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work here. Um, But I do think there are some commonalities among New Mexicans. And as we identify some of those similarities between communities, we have the opportunity to say across our state, New Mexicans are saying we want more project-based learning or we want more relevancy in our classes. So me as a student, I know when I get out of high school, I'll have opportunities and pathways to careers that will help me be successful. Okay. Um, So kind of bringing things back a little bit and looking at the bigger picture, how do you feel about the state of public education throughout New Mexico? I don't want to be naive, but I'm also hopeful, right? So when you look at the statistics, it doesn't tell a particularly compelling story. But when you talk to students, when you talk to parents, when you talk to teachers in different communities, they'll say, we're more than these statistics. And maybe we don't have the highest test scores, but we have a lot of perseverance. We have a lot of resilience. We have a lot of things that might not be showing through with these test scores. We have deep culture and history and our language is an asset. And there's so many other things about us as New Mexicans that we're proud of and that we're good at. Um, So in one sense, I think the state of education can very much improve. At the same time, I think it's important that we recognize our assets and we build from there rather than embracing a deficit mentality where we're not good enough and we have poor scores and everyone's failing and we're broken. I don't think that's the case at all. And I think as I talk to more New Mexicans, uh, they don't feel broken either. Awesome. That was a fantastic answer. And I want to say I really <laughs> I really respect the positivity that you have um, as someone who is doing the work because yeah. kind of like you said, a lot of people have this defeatist mentality of this is everything wrong with the state of New mm-hmm. Mexico and you're looking at here's what we can do to make mm-hmm. it better and to improve. And so I think that's the mindset that we need from mm-hmm. someone who's doing the work that you're doing. So I do want to uh, give props to that. Um, so kind of shifting gears a little bit, um, I know you'd mentioned the Every Student Succeeds Act. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about that. I've seen a lot of the campaigns that have been going on, so mm-hmm. it's getting a lot of traction. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe you can lay it out for our listeners what it entails and what we hope to get out of it. From the Learning Alliance perspective, I think one of the most exciting things about ESSA is that it asks for stakeholder input. So going back out to local communities and saying, how do you have more local control? What does that look like and what do you want? And I think that's a real opportunity and something that New Mexicans have been asking for for a while based on what I've been hearing. And so now it's up to us to to use that opportunity and to take advantage of that. 
couple different efforts taking place. Um, Learning Alliance has partnered with the New Mexico School Superintendents Association and the New Mexico Coalition for Charter Schools. We created a toolkit. This is a decentralized way for that information to get out to a lot of different communities and for folks to have focus groups uh, by whatever means is convenient for them. We've also partnered with the UNM CEPR, that's the Center for Education Policy and Research. They're going to be crunching some of the data for us. And we think the value of that toolkit is asking common questions across different communities so we can really compare apples to apples. We're focusing on standards, assessment, and accountability, which are three big pieces of ESSA. And we're asking very specific questions to see how people want to move in different directions within those areas. Um, I mean, education reform is such an important topic, and I think that uh, ESAA has the potential to set a lot of awesome groundwork. Um, and so I'm looking at you know things in the past, like No Child Left Behind, and I'm wondering what can ESSA offer that's a little bit different, and how are they approaching education in a way that we maybe haven't seen before? I think there are some similarities between No Child Left Behind and ESSA, and there are folks who say that ESSA doesn't go far enough for some of the changes that they want to see. And there are others who say, again, there are changes with ESSA that are big enough that if, if we take advantage of it, that could be that could change the system in a positive way. And one of one of those changes is I think ESSA calls for more local control. As I mentioned, part of that is the stakeholder engagement piece. So we learn what local control would look like. But I, I've been encouraging folks, if you have a specific interest, if you're somebody who's really passionate about working with or supporting foster youth. Take a look at some of the the research that's been done through ESSA and some of those other advocacy groups. There's a lot of information in ESSA about English learners, which is a, a big population in our state, and some of the opportunities about how to better serve English learners and foster youth and other folks too. So if you're a teacher, ESSA could mean different things for you as a teacher. Um, given the upcoming transitions that are happening um, on a federal level, what sort of challenges and changes can we expect for our education um, in our country and also in New Mexico? So at this point, uh, all I can do is speculate. We've heard a lot of different things about what could or couldn't happen. With the selection of Secretary, I believe you say, DeVos, we know that she's very pro-charter, pro-voucher. Right. And so what that means to our state, we'll, we'll see. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is positive about the Every Student Succeeds Act is that because it had bipartisan support and there had been a lot of momentum moving around it, I, I think I'm hearing that taking that bill down or changing it substantially wouldn't jive very well with, with the parties. Okay. So it sounds like there's going to be some stability, at least within that ESSA piece that we are focusing so strongly on, um, which is exciting. Also, maybe with the Trump administration, he says, you know what, states should be more accountable for what's right. happening which is also part of that ESSA piece, which kind of doubles down on what we're doing. So what do New Mexicans want to see um, in their state if there is more local control or if that's what the federal administration requires or asks for? Okay. And I think that's a very fair answer. And I think that we can only plan so much into the future Mm -hmm. when so much is going to be changing. But I think that's the best perspective to have. Um, So of that, I would like to ask you, with the recent uh, election results, what will that mean for the Learning Alliance and also ESSA? So I think the recent election results provides an opportunity for us to have additional conversations and maybe deeper conversations. And I think it's good because, again, this idea of states having more local control, how are we trying to get ourselves into a position where we can advocate for what we want rather Mm -hmm. than be reactive to what somebody else tells us to do? Um, In my experience, New Mexicans appreciate when we're more, when we have more agency, when we're saying this is the direction we're heading rather than we don't want to do that other thing. 
okay, if we don't want to do that other thing, what do we want to do? Okay. Uh, and my hope is that um, there's going to be a federal landscape that opens up that door mm-hmm. so there's more state control. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean state government. Right. That could maybe mean, you know, even at a more local level, parents and students and teachers okay. and uh, district administrators, right? The very, very local level. How can folks learn more about the Learning Alliance and get more involved? So a couple of different things. We'd love to have you visit our website. That's www.learningalliancenm.org. We also have a Facebook page that you can like and, and follow us there. I would love to hear from you. You can give me an email, um, Ian Escabel at learningalliancenm.org, or you can call me 505-414-1952, however I can be helpful and useful. Yeah. So is there any message that you would want to give to young people, especially in regards to their education? I would say investing in education is investing in yourself. And there are lots of different ways to get educated, whether it's the traditional path maybe behind a desk or just listening to family members or community members or a coach or a um, you know, religious leader. I think if you keep your ears and your eyes and your heart open, you can learn a lot in this world. Uh, and I would encourage those students to follow their passion and follow their interest and know that there's a job waiting for you, whatever your abilities may be. So to kind of hone that open-mindedness, hone having an open heart uh, and, and pursue your passion, I think would be ideal. Uh, at the end of the day, public education is to serve students. And I think sometimes I sit in rooms with conversations full of adults, and we're not hearing from young people. We're not hearing from students. And when we want to make decisions about what the public public education system should be, can be, will be, but we're not listening to students, I think there's a big disconnect there. So as a student, I would encourage you to to participate, whether it's one of these focus groups or jump online and fill out one of those surveys. Um, but public education is really directed to your interest and how are we how are we serving you well. And if we're not, let us know and uh, let us know how we can better help you. And so the last question I want to ask you, is there anything about um, regulations that are going to affect stakeholder input, especially for ESSA? So one of the exciting things that we just learned is that the Department of Education has pushed back their deadline for when okay. states submit their plans. Um, so April 3rd, or I think it's September 17th, okay. are the two new deadlines compared to, they were a couple months be- uh, before. Okay. So what that does is it offers states more time okay. to listen to stakeholders and to gather that input. So we're excited because we think uh, PED will have more time to take a look at the information that we provide them, to have that inform their plan that they'll submit at a later date compared to when we initially thought. Okay. So then it's in a lot of ways, it's kind of a win-win because it gives us all a little bit more time to fully realize this vision and make sure that we have the groundwork in place. Absolutely. I think awesome. the the more time we take to listen to more New Mexicans, the the smarter that'll be in terms of informing what do more New Mexicans want. Okay. So Ian, I want to give you the floor. Is there anything else that you'd want to tell our listeners that you would share with us? So one of the other important things that I think ESSA does that's specifically relevant to New Mexico that maybe No Child Left Behind didn't take as much of an opportunity with is ESSA... Uh, requires tribal consultation. Okay. And in a a state where we have 11% of native population, I think it's so important that we're engaging with tribal communities and tribal leaders to learn how we can support all students, but also how we can support specifically tribal students. So I, I think we have a real opportunity, especially in New Mexico, to kind of lead the country and what that might look like and how are we engaging with our native communities in a real authentic way that supports them and starts to create some some bridges and some partnerships in 
again, a powerful way that other states can look to and say, we want to start doing what New Mexico's doing. Absolutely. Um, Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. It's been a pleasure to sit with you, and thank you. Yeah, well, thank you, Matthew and Generation Justice. I appreciate all the work that you're doing and hope that there's ways that we can continue to support each other moving forward. Absolutely. This is Matthew Brown with Generation Justice. Ian, thank you for your energy, your optimism, and your spirit. New Mexico needs more innovative and engaged thinkers just like you. I admire your dedication to improve education in New Mexico, especially the inclusiveness of the indigenous community. Thank you, Ian, for making progressive strides for the betterment of education. Next on the track, we bring you The White Buffalo with Oh Darlin' What Have I Done? Then after that, The Thrill Is Gone by B.B. King. Oh darling, darling, what have I done? I've been away from you too long. darkness and I believe my heart is turned to stone We've come to the end of another great show. We'd like to give a special thanks to tonight's guests, Barney Kasim, Alejandro Macias, and Ian Escabel. Production assistance for tonight's program came from Katie Rizuni, Roberta Rael, and George Lina Pena. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe. We're also active on social media, so be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Konalma Health Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. I'm Matthew Brown. And I'm Alicia Hernandez. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Good night, woke folk, and remember, you are loved, and tomorrow's another day. You'll be